Open your Bibles to John, what's my thing doing here? John chapter 8. All right, wait a minute, my iPad's not cooperating with me. There we go. Uh, we've been going through the book of John, right? So we're on chapter 8. Uh, Got to warn you, one, I'm only going to get through the first 11 verses today because there's just a lot there. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery, uh, which of course also means it might be a little PG-13 this morning because, you know, adultery. So, uh, but I think we will be okay. Uh, so, uh, let me begin by just reading this story to you. It should be a familiar story, but I want to point out some things, and we're going to discover something that is super applicable to us every day. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's not often a woman gets drug out and stoned. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, but it really is going to apply to us. And you're going to learn something that will be, I think, helpful to you. Okay? All right. So, Lord, give us grace to understand the principles you're highlighting here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now if you remember, John chapter 7, he was there for the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so he's just, this is after the feast, he's gone out to the Mount of Olives. At some point he's come back into Jerusalem to teach some more. And he says, then the scribes and the Pharisees, now we're trying to get a mental picture of all this. He's teaching, and a bunch of people came to hear him teach, kind of like this right now. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, this teacher, teacher this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is out sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Then Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, there is a bunch more here than you may realize. I want you to get this. First of all, let's notice that the woman was caught in adultery by herself. Because the law they're referring to is very clear. If uh, you're caught in adultery, both parties are supposed to be stoned. And they caught her in the very act, so clearly it was just her, right? Yeah. Who's suspicious? They were looking to trap Jesus. I don't think they just wandered by a little herd of Pharisees wandering around Jerusalem and went, oh, woman, a woman 
caught in adultery. Let's, you know, I think this was a setup. I think, in fact, I think the Pharisees were deeply involved. I think, you know, you know, one of them had a cousin, Billy Bob, or something that had a girl on the side. Or just, uh, she, we don't know, she might have been a pro, and they just hired her and then drug her in. But it's clear that the, the fix is in. A setup is going on, and this woman is just a poor victim who's going to be used by them to trap Jesus. Now, I want you to understand the trap. It's important that you understand the trap. And uh, the Pharisees were very clever. They were very good about trapping people. And here's what it was. Um, the trap was Jesus, here's a woman caught in adultery. Moses said, she needs to be stoned. What do you say? And, and from the Pharisees' point of view, they only have two choices. Jesus either says, nah, I'm not into throwing rocks at women. Let's not. In which case, they get to then go out and accuse him of not keeping the law. And they get to go tell all the people, look, he doesn't even do the law of Moses. You need to quit listening to this guy. Or he goes, yep, you're right. Give me a rock. Let's do this thing. Now, what's the win there for the Pharisees? Well, the people love Jesus. Remember, they want to kill him, but they're afraid because of the people, because the people count him a prophet. And sinners like hanging out with him. How is this going to be as a PR move if Jesus stones a woman? You know, I really liked that guy until I saw him throw a rock and hit a woman right in the face. I'm out. He's a lot like the Pharisees now, right? And so it's a lose-lose. Whatever he picks, it's a lose. And Jesus, as Jesus always does, doesn't get caught in the trap, which is amazing. And the reason it's amazing is because we are regularly confronted with the same common trap all the time and may not realize it. So I want to make sure you understand the trap so you don't get caught in it. Now, it always has to do with sin. It doesn't always have to do with adultery, but, uh, and it could be any sin. Uh, but lately, and especially, it usually has to do with sexual sin, right? And here's the trap. A, and don't misunderstand, if the, it, it's people asking the questions, but the trap comes from the devil. The devil's trying to trap us because the devil wants the church to look bad. He wants you to look bad. He wants you to not have influence. And so here's the trap. A, are you going to give license to something God calls sin and compromise holiness, move towards unholiness. Holiness just meaning being set apart for God, doing it his way. And so uh, we get things like, um, were you saying that uh, this couple who are living together just because they're not married, that's wrong? They love each other. Are you saying that two people of the same sex, if they really love each other, can't be together? Are you saying, you guys have heard these things, right? Are you saying that? Are you saying that? And they want to get us to comment, and it's a trap. The first thing the devil wants us to do is to give license to things God doesn't give license to because that waters down the entire witness of the church. And if we don't do that, the devil's hoping we'll engage in legalism. Yes, they're filthy sinners and they're going to hell. No one would do that, right? Especially not online or anything. And so we come off as unloving. And it doesn't matter to the devil either way if we come off as unholy or unloving. Because neither one's appealing. 
and it ruins our effectiveness. How many of you have found yourself uh, staring at both sides of this trap in the last few months? Going, how do I answer this? Well, the good news is Jesus didn't get caught in the trap. And if we pay attention to what he did in his example, we can probably learn how to avoid it. I want to note two things Jesus didn't do. Jesus did not validate this woman's lifestyle. In fact, I can't find anywhere in the scripture where he validated sin, even though sinners like to hang out with him. Now, that's interesting. He didn't validate her lifestyle, but he also didn't condemn her. He clearly did not condemn her. How did he pull that off? How did he walk through this thing and not fall into either sides of the trap that they laid for him? And how do we do the same thing in the trap that's laid for us all the time? How do we avoid this trap? What's the secret? Well, the secret is noticing that he had a public and a personal response and understanding when to apply which one and what to do. Okay? So let's look at his public response first. His public response is this. A bunch of Pharisees stand around. He says, let he who is, out, he who is without sin cast the first stone. His public response is basically, and this principle is so important and so easy for the church to forget, that we are equally guilty of sin. The first thing he points out is, I'm not going to comment on license or on legalism. I'm just going to point out that the thing you want me to do to her, everyone qualifies for. We are equally guilty of sin. Everybody must get stoned, right? Sometimes it just works. All right. And so he takes away the power of accusation. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 2, verse 1, when he said, you, it is inexcusable when you accuse others because you accuse them, but you do the same things. And so that's what he did. He, he basically pointed out to the Pharisees, you want to stone her for something you guys all do. Right? And so they dropped the rocks and walked away. Now, when he says the same things, he doesn't just mean adultery. I want you to notice, he didn't say, let anyone with this sin cast the first stone. Anyone who's committed adultery cast the first stone. Although I believe there were some candidates in the crowd among the Pharisees. He said, let anyone with any sin cast the first stone. And so we have to understand that uh, equal guilt and that there is not, you know, a weight of better and worse sins. Uh, I learned this as a very young man, very new believer. Um, I was another believer, a guy who I, I looked up to, and I thought he was a mature Christian, I, and I witnessed him lose his temper and uh, began to judge him in my heart. And in my head, I'm going, this guy's a Christian. How can he lose his temper like that? And God, uh, in his graciousness, began to speak to me and said, Tony, you, you didn't lose your temper even before you were a Christian. Remember emotional range of a cow? So, 
I said, uh, I said, yeah. He goes, but you do do this and this, and you struggle with this. And, th and he started a list, and I stopped him because <laughs> the list was getting pretty long. And I said, I think I see your point, God. I don't have any right to judge him for his issue with anger. I got my own issues, right? So he's not just talking about adultery. He's talking about we're equally guilty of sin and deserving of stoning. He hits this concept. And the reason he has to do this is because we like to think, uh, we, we like to, you know how it is. We, we like to think we're not the worst person in the world. So we'll like to find someone who's a worse sinner than we are, right? Because we feel better. Uh, we can be better or feel better by finding someone who does worse. And it's always easier to find someone who does worse. So Jesus kind of addresses this in Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. He says, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He killed this guy and mixed their blood with the sacrifices. And man, they must have been horrible people, right? Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans, Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What's Jesus saying? There are no worse sinners. There's just people who've repented and people who haven't. That's it, right? Because it doesn't take very much sin to qualify us for not making heaven with a perfect God, does it? And so Jesus is making it clear we are equally guilty. I love in Isaiah 64, I want to I show you two mindsets that we have to hold because it is really easy. It is really easy for us to forget that we are equally guilty, just as guilty as the world. And it's, uh, it's also easy because we don't want to focus on our sin. We want to focus on that we're a new creation in Christ and he's made us righteous, don't we? And that's, that's good. We should. But we can't let go of this understanding or uh, we can end up like the Pharisees. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, Isaiah says something really interesting. He says, all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And he's not just talking about a dirty wash towel. It's a specific reference. So he's saying all of our righteousness is filthy compared to God. Now, it's hard for us to grasp this, and so I want us to think about it. We usually do the Ten Commandments, and if we want to feel like we're doing better than someone else, we're not worse sinners, we'll say something like, well, I haven't killed anyone, or, you know, I haven't committed adultery, I've been faithful to my spouse, and that works until you read the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Well, I guess I have killed someone. I've killed a lot of people. Right? Because Jesus is taking the Ten Commandments, outward actions, and funneling them through our hearts. 
And so that's where the filthy rags comes in. Yeah, I didn't do technically anything wrong. But in my heart, filthy rags. And Jesus is a discerner of the hearts and judges our hearts. Well, I haven't committed adultery, right? Well, Sermon on the Mount says if I've looked at a woman to lust after her, I've committed adultery. How many times? You know? I know how you guys are. I know you women. You see a football game, those guys in the football pants. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Right? Adultery. In our hearts. And so we begin to get a glimpse of this. Our righteousness as being as filthy rags, right? And then we compare that to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Is that mind-blowing? That you can be the righteousness of God equivalent to the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? Well, which one are you? Is your righteousness the righteousness of God or filthy rags? It's a good question. And so what happens is we need to kind of, we, we obviously want our identity in the second one, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The trick is that last part. And it should be an incentive to stay in Christ Jesus because that's the only place we have that kind of righteousness. Otherwise, filthy rags. And so where we get in trouble is when we lose sight that we are equally guilty of sin, and we begin comparing ourselves. I love Second uh, Corinthians ten twelve. Paul says, "If we we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, they're not wise." So, what does that look like? Well, I, I get me a scale, and I go, "How am I doing as a Christian?" Well, here's up here is Moses and Job, and Enoch, and people like that. And down here, Hitler, and the guy who invented disco. And <laughs> I just, I'm estimating. And, <laughs> sorry. And here I am. I'm a little bit better than half. I'm like eight Hitlers easily. I'm almost half a Job. I'm doing pretty good. Right? And we do that. And, and I've got lots of these worst sinners I can compare myself to. Right? Now, the problem is God comes along and he changes the standard in the scale. He says, you're not supposed to be comparing yourselves with others. Let's compare you to me. Like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Isaiah, the guy who wrote, our righteousness is like filthy rags. I think he really got it. And the reason I think he really got it is because he experienced it. He was going along pretty well in Isaiah chapter 5. He's, you know, here's Moses and uh, Enoch. And then uh, here's, you know, King Uzziah. And I'm up here pretty good. And here's the guy who, you know, lives in my neighborhood who won't ever pick up after his dog. So I'm doing pretty good. And then all of a sudden... He gets to Isaiah 6, and he sees God high and lifted up, and his scale goes literally through the roof, right? 
And he, and he, he doesn't have any choice. He has to look at that scale now. And he goes, oh my God. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. On this scale, there's God and his holiness. And here's, here's me and the guy who won't pick up after his dog in filthy rags. We're all like, I can't, I think I got a centimeter on him, but doesn't really matter anymore. You understand? And so we have to have the right scale. And that's what the scripture does. Galatians 6, I'm sorry, Galatians 3, 22. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It was important. The whole purpose of the law was so that we would know that we are equally guilty, confined under sin, so that we would recognize how much we need Jesus. Right? The promise of faith might be given to those who believe. Now, this was written by Paul, who referred to himself as the chief sinner in 1 Timothy 1. Chief sinner. Same guy who wrote, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, wrote, I am the chief sinner. So, I think Paul has two plaques on his wall in his office. Righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm really proud of that. And chief sinner. I won the Olympic sinning contest in AD 33. Adultery. Pfft, I was killing Christians. I set the record for sin in 33. I took the whole Middle East. Right? So why has the man who said, I forget those things that are behind me and press forward to the call of God, remember that he's the chief sinner. He goes, I got to know that. I got to know that so that I can appreciate being the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that I have been elevated to the right hand of the Father, seated in Christ Jesus in heavenly places, is astounding, and I will forget how astounding it is if I don't remember where I came from. So it's really important that we get this concept of equal guilt. In fact, that's probably the most important thing I'm saying today. That we are all equally guilty. Because the enemy wants to make it uh, us versus them. Us righteous folks against them sinners. Right? And God goes, it's just, you're just all sinners. The only difference is some of you put faith in me so I can make you righteous. Some of you haven't. Right? And we got to remember that. Because it will change how we interact with the world. And especially, it will change how we do in this trap. So here's the thing that I want you to get. He avoided this trap by playing the equal guilt card, didn't he? And they all dropped their rocks and walked away. They went, yep, you're right. This trap isn't going to work. We didn't think about that third possibility where none of us qualified to throw rocks except you. So we avoid this trap by publicly, again, this was his public response, by publicly sticking to the gospel. Just sticking to the gospel. So if you're online and someone wants to know what you think about their particular sin, 
I go, look, I'm not going to get into which sins are still in play and which one's culture has changed. There are lists. They're in the Bible. I'll happy to show you a list. You can check the list and see if your sin is on there. But I'm not going to redefine, I'm not going to entertain redefining them for you. Here's what I say, the gospel, and it's right here, I put it in your notes, we are equally guilty of sin. Jesus is the only thing that can save us. He gives us grace to overcome sin. Well, what about this sin? Check your list. Don't care. Don't care. Not going to rate them. Not going to talk about which one's worse. I'll show you where the lists are. We are all equally guilty of sin. Jesus is the only thing that can save us. He gives grace. That is a safe public testimony that keeps us out of these traps. Well, what, well, you won't tell me about Well, go look. You and God, go check it out. I'll get you a Bible. You can look for yourself. Why wouldn't through me? You see what I'm saying? See the brilliance of Jesus here? He just puts it down to, hey, we're all equally, well, him not. He was the only one guy that could throw a rock. All the rest of us are equally guilty of sin. He gives us grace. And I want you to remember that grace is not just forgiveness. Grace is empowerment. Grace is God empowering us to live new lives, to be new creations in Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, so this is how we avoid the trap in the public way. Let's also look at his personal response, because there is a place to respond to this personally. The problem is we try and do the personal response publicly, and it doesn't work. It goes something like this. You know, uh, you're online, and you're in the middle of one of these debates, and you know, it's talking about same-sex marriage or uh, not saying, you know, or adultery or uh, whatever, changing your gender. And you go, you make a statement like, uh, well, God hates homosexuality, which is technically true. It's biblical. But it implies things that are not true, like he hates it more than he hates other sin. Right? And... You don't know that there's someone, a woman online going, well, my daughter's in a homosexual marriage. God hates my daughter? And you don't know she's thinking that. So you can't go, no, 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 no. God doesn't hate your daughter. He hates sin and what it's doing to your daughter. You don't get to qualify that because you don't know she thought that. You just threw out that statement. That's truth. Well, yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Way safer in public, to just go, we've all sinned, and our only hope is Jesus. Bam. What about my sin? I'll show you where the lists are. You can, you can see if yours is on there. There's some for all of us. Right? All right. So, the point being, uh, you would deal with that mom with a daughter who's in sin in a, a personal way where you can, you know, communicate, have nuanced communication, right? It doesn't seem that hard, but the church should get this. So Jesus, in dealing with the woman caught in adultery, gives her mercy, honor, and hope. Now, she was guilty, guys. She was caught in the very act. 
And Jesus, with no further testimony, gave her mercy, honor, and hope. Amen. Right? Let's look at how he did this. Now, I want you to see this from her perspective because it's, it's easy to see this from Jesus' perspective, from the crowd's perspective. Forget about this woman. I want you to imagine you didn't come to church today. Everybody's sitting here just like this. And half a dozen local pastors come to your house, grab you by the hair, drag you in here, throw you right there, and announce to all of us your secret worst sin. How you feeling? Shame. And lots of it. You're probably hoping they'll kill you so this will end. Right? And that's what they did to this woman. They threw her in the midst. She's pretty sure she's going to die. She got caught in the act of adultery. I'm not sure they said, hey, get up and, you know, get dressed. I think they just drug her out. I don't know what condition she was in. But here she is. She's drug into church at the temple. And she's got a bunch of guys ready to pick up stones and kill her. That's it. And in the midst of that, one guy makes them all leave and looks at her and says, where'd they go? She goes, they're gone. He goes, yeah, I'm not going to condemn you either. Go and send them all. That's some incredible mercy. Right? So that's her experience. Let's look at this. Now, what I want you to see, not only the mercy, is that he gave her honor. He did not have to wait until they were alone to talk to her. He could, he could have made the statement, but he was among you without sin, cast the first stone. Could have waited three, four minutes and go, no one, no one, no one. Okay, then, let's move on. But he didn't. He waited till every one of them left before he even talked to her. Isn't that interesting? Honor. Here's a thought. Considering the shame she was under, perhaps we should avoid dealing with deeply personal issues. How many of you find sexuality to be a deeply personal issue? Good. I don't want to hear about it. Right? And so our sexual sin is also a deeply personal issue. Just because it's sin doesn't mean it's fodder for public conversation. Right? Now, we should probably have to deal with it at whatever level of public notoriety it's gained because you have to fix stuff. But if someone's sin is private, let's keep it private. The Bible says uh, in Proverbs, uh, he who covers a transgression seeks love. We don't expose transgressions. We try and deal with them. So what if, what if the church, recognizing how shameful it is or how shameful we feel when we screw up and sin, extended grace to others, and avoided dealing with deeply personal issues in a public and impersonal way. Let me say that again. What if we didn't deal with deeply personal issues in a public and impersonal way? Doesn't that seem wise? That's what Jesus did. And I don't, I don't need to deal with someone's personal issue who's, you know, in another state and whatever. Right? I just need to deal with people around me. And we can deal with it in a private and personal way. And that might help the person, actually. If that were our goal, to actually help them and not just talk about them, right? But I'm assuming that's our goal. Now, the third thing he does is give her hope. And this is in that last statement, sin no more. Now, 
I'm going to freely admit I did not used to like that statement. It bugged me because I, I was taking it wrong. Um, a few years ago, uh, Gary was teaching out of this passage. I'm sitting in the back there, and we got to that part, and I'm like, I hate this part because it sounds so much like, you know, I'm not going to condemn you either. Now stop it. <laughs> and I'm like, what? What are you doing, God? Why? If she could have stopped it, she probably wouldn't be at your feet right now, you know? And so that was kind of where I was at. And God, that one time I'm sitting back there, he, he kind of pokes me and he goes, Tony, that wasn't a commandment. That was a, a statement of grace and empowerment. I was imparting grace to her to go and sin more. And I went, oh, that's way different. And that's so much more in line with your character. Now I like this verse, right? So here's what's going on. See, I was seeing it through the law as a command, go and sin no more. And Jesus, I think, was seeing it through grace and empowerment. Here's grace to go and sin no more. See, here's what that looks like. Let's say you come to my office for counseling and you go, Pastor, I'm really, really struggling with fear. And I go, well... The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Do you believe God loves you? And you go, yes. Do you believe he loves you perfectly? I go, yes. I go, well, then don't be afraid then. See you. Isn't that awesome? I'm that good. <laughs> Pastor, I'm really struggling with anger. Well, that's sin. Don't do it anymore. Pastor, I'm really struggling with anxiety. Well, the Bible says don't be anxious for anything, but with prayer and supplication, make a request known to God. Let's just pray. All right, we're done. Good. Stop being anxious. People would be lining up my door to get counsel, wouldn't they? <laughs> we all know it's not that simple. See, that's the command. That's the law. Just stop it. Well, Israel has, in Galatians, the whole book talks about this. We have hundreds of years of experience of not being able to just stop it. That was the whole point of the law. You don't do well under the law. You need something else. You need Jesus. You need grace. And so the way that counsel should look when you come to my office is one of those things is go, well, listen, I know we don't have to stay there in that fear or anxiety or anger. Let's, let's look for tools to access God's grace. Maybe we're going to memorize some scripture. Maybe we're going to find some things that happen that, that we need to deal with. Maybe there's some lies that you've believed. But let's work on this thing and let's access God's grace because I know there's grace to overcome. Now that's hopeful. You might come back for counseling if I said something like that. Right? You understand the difference between viewing that statement through the law and through grace. And so Jesus was imparting grace to her. Now, here are my takeaways and what I'm hoping will be your takeaways for this passage. The first one is this. We have no authority to license what God calls sin. So if people go, well, what about, what do you think about this? It doesn't matter what I think about that. Check the list. I don't get to edit the list. I don't have any authority to weigh in on whether or not that's sin. Just read your Bible. If it says it's sin, it's sin. Culture doesn't change that. I don't have authority to change that. 
No church has, I don't care how many pastors meet together and write books, they don't have authority to change God's word. We do not have authority to license what God calls sin. And here's the thing. We need to understand it is not our job to make sinners comfortable. Because we want to, because we certainly commiserate. I know how you feel. I'm a sinner too. And I hate how uncomfortable makes me feel. I'd like to make you feel comfortable. But we don't, we don't, it's not our job to make sinners feel comfortable. Let me tell you a story to illustrate this. We were on a vacation. We need to do that again soon, babe. In South Carolina. And uh, the couple whose vacation cottage we were staying in, um, their house was right next door. And we hit it off with them, and they're Christians, and they took us on a boat, and we looked at birds and ate sandwiches, and it was lots of fun. And uh, that evening, we're sitting around talking, and she's telling us about her church. Now, they love Jesus. And the church she's going to is beginning to slide towards embracing some of the new cultural norms, um, uh, homosexual marriage, stuff like that. And she's asking me what I think, and she says, I don't remember exactly how she phrased it, but essentially it was, I think it's wrong, and I wouldn't do it, but I don't feel like I can put that on them. And, and my thought is, you didn't put that on them. God put that on them. But, and besides, it's not them, it's us, right? And so I said, I'm thinking, how do I illustrate this for her? Because I know what's basically going on is she doesn't want people in a sinful lifestyle to feel uncomfortable. And I get that. And I said, okay. I said, here's an example. You're driving home. Someone cuts in front of you, uh, honks a horn, flips you off, whatever. Uh, do you, your reading of the Bible, do you have to forgive that person? Didn't take her a second. Yes. Have to. Yes. Sure. Yes. Can't do that. Yes. I said, okay. That guy pulls into your house and brutally murders your daughter. Do you have to forgive him? And she just looks at me. And I said, here's the thing. The principle's the same. The principle hasn't changed. What's changed is it just got a lot harder to do. I said, you still have to forgive me, but the first one you could do just in your own strength. You're probably going to need some grace from God to pull off the second one. Forgive someone that brutally murdered your daughter. Right? I said, this is what's going on. I said, uh, you want to give them a pass because it's hard. And it is hard. It's very hard to overcome sexual sin we get caught in. It can be very difficult. Not just sexual, all kinds of sin. You guys know that. I'm not going to ask for hands. We all struggle to overcome sin. It can be hard. And we want to give a pass because it's hard. Right? But the principle is the same. If it's sin, it's sin. If it's sin that's easy to overcome or hard to overcome, it's still sin. It doesn't change. Now, it is our job, and this is what I want you to get about this. It's not our job to make sinners comfortable, especially just because they're in a hard spot. And I get it. It's hard, and they're trying, and it's hard, and they keep failing, and it's hard. I get it. Been there. It is our job to help those who want it. Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, he says um, that you who are spiritual, if someone's overtaken in a sin, caught, having difficulty, you who are spiritual, restore them, help them. In the spirit of meekness, 
Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Remember how easy it is for you to get caught in sin as well. But then bear their, their burden with them. Help them. Okay? So here's the thing. God doesn't give us a pass just because overcoming our sin is difficult. He gives us more grace. Let me say that again. We want to give him a pass. God goes, no, I'll give him more grace. If they'll keep coming, I'll give him more grace. And so, yeah, it can be difficult. And we've had a lot of that here. You don't always know about what's going on with people here. Yeah, it can be difficult. Yeah, it can take time. It might take you months or years to get victory. It's okay. We'll help you for months or years. We'll help you as long as you're still calling it sin and trying to overcome it. The only thing we can't help you with is when you throw in the towel and say it's too hard or it's taking too long. And so I'm just going to go with this book that this other pastor wrote that says God doesn't really mean that sin anymore and, I, and I'm okay. Then I can't help you. But as long as you, I don't care if it's until you die, you'll die in Christ, in the righteousness of Christ, having fought that thing for your whole life. Right? But I know people who have just given up because it was too hard or it took too long. And they didn't believe that God could give them grace. Grace always abounds more than sin. Amen? You guys getting this? So we don't give a pass just because it's difficult, but we do need to be willing to help. Pray and walk with people. And, and have that equal guilt attitude where, hey, I, I get it. I'm just like you. I might just be a little bit further along. Let's, let's work this thing. I'm not looking down on you. No shame. Right? Grace. Now, not only do we have no authority to license what God calls sin, we have no authority to condemn, period. You know why? You're not God. He's the one that will do that. And he will do it when he wants. And it's not today. God decides who he's going to condemn and when they've had enough time to repent, right? Now, here's what that means. Hear me, you guys who, have, who are evangelists, really hear me on this one. It is also, in the same way it's not our job to make sinners comfortable, it is not our job to make sinners uncomfortable. That is not your job. That is the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit, John 16, 8, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We don't need to help him make people feel bad. We've all experienced it. If he wants you to feel your sin, he can do it, right? It's up to him whether you're going to feel comfortable or uncomfortable at any given moment. And so what I do, my takeaway from this, how I handle this in the same way publicly, I... Uh, trying to just stick to the gospel and not get into people's individual sins. Privately, I try and keep it between them and Jesus and the word. So when someone says to me, you know, are you saying that Jesus is the only way? And if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to hell. I go, no, I would never say that. I'm saying Jesus said that. <laughs> you should talk to him about it. 
It's important because they're looking for someone to agree with them. And I'm going, I ain't that guy. And I ain't going to disagree with you. I'm just going to point you to the same guy I had an issue with. You go deal with it. Here's a book. I'll show you the lists, right? And then I try and give them the gospel. Great example of this. A guy, this was years ago, a guy came by and wanted help. And I ended up giving him a ride to the bus station. And on the way, I'm talking to him. I'm just talking to him about Jesus, just giving him the gospel. And then uh, he trusts me enough, I guess, at that point to ask me a personal question. So uh, we get out, and he's, he's getting ready to head into the bus station. We're standing by the car, and he says, what do you think uh, the Bible says about homosexuality? And I'm like, oh, now we're, de- now we're getting down to his stuff. And I said, it says it's sin, just like. You know, and I think I talked to him about my life. Uh, I got saved just after college, so I covered a lot of that list in college. Uh, I said, it's just like my adultery, just like my, I, I just listed my stuff. I said, it's just a sin, along with a whole bunch of others. Uh, equal guilt. I said, but uh, trying to get him to ask better questions. Better question isn't, is my thing sin? Or can I keep this sin? The better question is, is Jesus who he said he is? And can he really give grace? Can he give you the power to overcome even that? Can he really make you a new creation in Christ? Those are better questions. You should think about those questions. That's the gospel. And so I was able to deal with his personal things because we were having a personal conversation. So that being said, it is our job to speak the truth in love with humility. Humility, the equal guilt thing. It's not us versus them. I love what um, Graham Cook says. We aren't fighting with them. We are fighting for them. If you find yourself fighting with them, uh, you're facing the wrong way. Oh, is it Whitfield? He's quoting Whitfield. Okay. Well, I heard him, so it's his now. All right. So you'll notice in your notes, I underline love. If you're not sure you can speak the truth in love, maybe wait on the truth part till you got the love part. Just a thought. It's not always good to go, well, I got the truth part. I'll just go with that and we'll work on the love later. No, the love part's important. Speak the truth in love. Actually care about the person. And that takes... You know, being personal, being with them. So it doesn't always work unless you can be with them. Then we just stick to the public gospel. Now, I want to finish with this. Uh, We assume the woman left. I know I would have. But I wonder what happened to her. I wonder if she went back to a life of adultery. I wonder if she stayed there in Jerusalem and... uh, After the crucifixion, when the church was born on the day of Pentecost, did she hear the gospel? Did she go, I remember that guy. Did she get saved? Are we going to see her in heaven and hear this story in more detail? I don't know. We don't know. But we do know this. I like to believe she did because I know hope is an incredible cure for shame. For her shame, he gave her hope. And 
wouldn't that be cool if we went to a church like that? That gave hope for shame. I believe every call to repentance should impart hope. We don't say it's okay. We do say you need to repent. But we go, man, you can do this. If you repent, God will give you grace. You can be a new creation in Christ. You can do better. I can do better. I'm still working on doing better. This may surprise you, but uh, I'm still working out my salvation. I'm still working out my righteousness in Christ. I still have stuff. And I could be drugged before a crowd just as easily as that woman. But I have grace. I've, I'm so much better than I was. And I'm getting better all the time because I'm in him. And I, I have vision of what it means that he is... Uh, forgiven my sin and imparted to me his righteousness and I'm trying to stay in that and his grace is there and you can have hope for that doesn't that sound good you want help you want help accessing the grace of God and being a better person we can do that and hopefully our lives are a testimony of that amen so that is what I learned from the woman caught in adultery you guys want to go to a church like that? Yeah. Amen.